everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week I'm going to be discussing multicolor green decks of all flavor in Lord of the Rings Limited. As always, the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes for patrons over there. And this archetype is not going to uh, use 17 lands stats very much because... It's really hard to do that for multicolor decks in general because the more colors a deck is in aggregate, the worse it's going to perform because it kind of removes all of the drafts where your seat, like the, the color pair that your seat is in happens to be wide open and you just kind of get everything and it's easy. Usually the drafts where you play a lot of colors or end up being like a little scrappier and you're making the most of a situation that's not necessarily ideal based on just how the packs were opened. So it's not that it's necessarily worse to draft, but the stats just aren't going to line up properly against like two color pairs. It's very hard to figure out like how strong is a multicolor deck in a format by comparing any particular win rates for archetypes in 17 lands. So not really going to worry about the stats, just going to talk about some general principles and how to make uh, multicolor green decks function. So kind of the biggest fundamental issue to solve when playing more than two colors is how does your mana work? And in this set, there are a lot of different options, and I kind of wanted to try to talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses and various considerations for those options. So first up, I want to talk about the land cyclers the common cycle of cards that uh, cycle for a single colorless mana and then find a basic land of um, that corresponds to their color. Notably, these cards are not independently fixing. Each card only gives you a single color of mana, so they are as much fixing as putting a basic land of that type in your deck is. So I have seen, the reason I mention this is that I've seen some people talk about like, oh, we're going to splash white, should we take an eagles to help with the splash? And that's just not what eagles do. For the most part, you would rather have a land cycler in your main color and then just like play an extra planes instead of the eagle because like, I guess really the, the situation is you draw the planes early. And then you've drawn, say, like three total lands, and you have an eagle, and you want to cycle this eagle for a mana, and you can't because you've already drawn your planes. So there's some risk there anytime you are playing the land cyclers with a low land count. But also, like, if you have six mana and you haven't drawn your white yet, then you still can't cast the eagles. Whereas if you've drawn six mana and you're playing a land cycler of your main color, you're basically guaranteed to be able to cast it. So in general, land cyclers of your primary color are better than land cyclers of a splash color. Though all of that doesn't really matter that much, the more important point is just they only give you one color of mana, a basic land fixes your mana as well as the land cyclers, so the only way in which land cyclers are fixing is that they kind of forgive having a lot higher land count because they can be played as a spell. And so, like they do kind of let you play an 18th land if that's something that you want to do. But in a deck that's playing extra colors, you're 
often going to be playing extra mana sources and in that in the case where you're playing extra mana sources like you're playing you know creatures or artifacts that tap for mana you don't really want to have extra lands because you'll flood out the fact that the land cyclers can be cast for six helps to forgive the extra mana from the extra uh, mana sources but i still would prefer not to play additional lands on top of having the extra mana sources, which is to say I do like land cyclers in decks that have additional mana sources, but I don't really like using them to play extra lands. I like, as usual, just replacing lands with land cyclers. I just value that more in a deck that has extra mana sources, uh, like cards like Woes, Pathfinder, and Inherit Envelope, where it's going to be easier to cast those land cyclers, so I'm getting more value out of having them over basic lands. But I do still want to watch my like total mana source count in the spots where I have to cycle these cards, and not use them as like additional like i don't want to replace a spell slot i want to be replacing a land spot with these land cyclers so in most cases they don't make your mana better the one exception to this is if you're using the cards specifically the the primary situation here would be uh if you have uh several land cyclers and then you can play elven farsight and then elven farsight can actually dig to find missing colors by finding your land cyclers. If you're trying to do this, you would want the other land cyclers more than generous and relative to where you would be in most green decks. So in this spot, you actually do want your splash colors to be on your land cyclers so that you can find your splash colors with your elven farsights. And then your Elven Farsight, even if it's not finding the land cycler, can also just scry to dig you to the uh, mana that you need. So Elven Farsight can work a little bit as fixing in a multicolored deck generically, and then it becomes actually good fixing if you have a lot of land cyclers. Also, it's really hard to play Elven Farsight if you don't have a lot of land cyclers, just as a function of the math on Elven Farsight. So to explain what I mean there, Elven Farsight is a very good card if there is a creature among your top three cards, because then you get to draw that creature and then decide what you want to do with the other two cards. If there are more creatures, it's even better, because then you get to pick which one of the creatures that you want and then whether you want the others or not. If you don't hit a creature in your top three, you probably want to put all three on the bottom. Then if you hit a creature fourth, your card was bad but fine, and if you miss, your card was horrible. So with 20 creatures in your deck, you are around 90% to find one in the top three, and then an additional about 5% to find one fourth. So you miss 10% of the time. You, you don't get to do interesting things with your top three cards. You just have to bottom all of them 10% of the time. And then 5% of the time, your card's horrible. That's a little bit risky, but I think the upside is high enough that I do like Elven Farsight, especially if you're trying to like use it in a multicolored deck to make your like draws smoother. I like Elven Farsight if you have like 20 creatures or more in your deck, but I think it's pretty bad if you're not at or very, very close to 20. And I think it's really hard to have a playable deck with 20 creatures in this format unless you have several land cyclers. So those creatures are replacing lands rather than replacing like instants and sorceries and other, you know, card types. So the effect of this is 
If you think that you might be in a space where you might want Elven Farsight, which would happen because you have some land cyclers, then you would start wanting to prioritize land cyclers more highly. So if you think you might go down this path, then having some land cyclers makes you actually want more land cyclers, where most of the time land cyclers are going to have diminishing returns because it's additional tap lands and, you know, additional, like each one, the, the novelty of this optionality kind of wears off when you have, you know, a lot of copies of the land cycler. You're, the first one is going to give you the ability to have a six drop. You don't need to have a whole bunch of six drops. The other case where there could be some exception is if you're using a land cycler to fix for a double splash or a double pip splash, and you have a way to get that land cycler back from the graveyard. So like if you're playing the troll and you're playing Samus Desperate Ritual Rescue and you're playing the Fell Beast, so the the black land cycler, the black raised dead, and then the uncommon black flyer four four flyer that costs four BB, you can land cycle your troll to get your first swamp, desperate rescue it, and then land cycle it again to get your second swamp. So in that case, you've only drawn one black source in drawing the troll, and you've gotten double black. So that's kind of a corner case where uh, the land cyclers can kind of be additional fixing. But for the most part, the, the land cyclers should not be thought of as improving your mana base in most drafts. That's kind of the key takeaway there. If, incidentally, you are doing that Elven Farsight with cycling things and you're trying to make mana work in a multicolor deck, you should particularly prioritize Woe's Pathfinder. That's the one in a green, one, one that taps for a mana of any color. And then for seven mana, you can tap it to give something plus three, plus three and trample. That card, of course, is very good to cast on turn two and fix your mana in a multicolor deck. And if you are casting Elven Farsight on turn one, which you would often want to do, then digging for Pathfinder is kind of your ideal situation and uh, makes your mana really smooth. So in that spot where you're kind of drafting toward Farsight, Woe's Pathfinder should be a particular priority for fixing way ahead of something like Many Partings or Inherited Envelope that's not going to play as well in that package. So you really want to be thinking about how exactly all of the different cards that you're using to fix your mana fit together and find uh, you know internal synergies between those cards with each other and those cards with the rest of your deck. Pathfinder is also just generically a good way to fix your mana in any deck that's more than two colors. You should be prioritizing it regardless of whether you're doing the Farsight thing. And for the most part, your deck doesn't have to have any particularly special considerations for Pathfinder, though it is, you know, four drops obviously become a little bit better when you have a two mana card that taps for mana and three drops correspondingly get a little bit worse just because your ideal curve is going to be Pathfinder into something that costs four to use your mana more efficiently. So the more Pathfinders you have, the more your curve should be kind of like U-shaped or whatever, where you have a lot of twos and fours and not a lot of threes. But for the most part, it's a two-mana card that gives you a mana of any color. It's not going to put you very far back to fix your mana, which is something that you should be prioritizing. So Pathfinder's very good fixing. Inherited Envelope, the colorless 3-drop that taps for a man of any color and tempts, is 
generically a bit worse than Pathfinder in green decks. It just costs an extra mana for largely the same output. And the difference between getting your fixing in play on turn two versus turn three is pretty big. But tempting is great. And notably, tempting is better the more other tempting you're doing. So if you're planning to use envelope for fixing, you want to, as always, pay attention to how your curve interacts with a three mana ramp card, which of course is very different than how it interacts with a two mana ramp card, in that you're gonna want a lot of twos and fives and not a lot of threes or fours. And you're also gonna want to be prioritizing tempt just because anytime you're in the temp business, all of your other temp stuff gets better. Notably, if you're playing Envelope, you really want to prioritize Gollum's Bite and Ranger's Firebrand. Uh, both of those are um, uncommon one-mana removal spells, which would allow you to play the Envelope on turn three and then likely kill your opponent's uh, one or two drop to not fall so far behind while you're playing your Envelope. Also, both Golem's Bite and Ranger's Firebrand contribute to the same temp strategy that you're looking for with the Envelope. And then the other card that I would really be looking for in a multicolor green deck that's using Envelope is Enraged Horn, the 4-5 temp uh, trample tree folk, because of course you're looking for five drops. Horn is a generically pretty good five drop that uh, synergizes with the envelope in that you have your, you know, stage two tempt after that curve. In a perfect world, you play a two drop into the envelope and then the horn and then your two drop attacks and loots. But even if you didn't have a two drop, you do at least get to have to put make the horn your ring bearer. Many partings, the green sorcery that makes a food and searches for a land is another generally good way to fix your mana, especially good, of course, if you have any food synergy. This card is going to be more of a priority than some of the other fixing in green-white in particular, just because, you know, green-white can often make good use of having the food. A less obvious way to take advantage of uh, many partings um, in terms of finding extra synergy with other cards is to use it as a land that puts a spell in your graveyard the same way that Lorien Revealed is, which can power up uh, Gandalf Sanction and Mouth of Sauron. And also that food can uh, be sacrificed to Improvised Club. So I think you can theoretically draft some kind of like teamer spells type situation with many partings contributing to your like spells and graveyard count stuff most of the time it's green is going to be a pretty awkward fit there and you'd be better off just playing a grixis deck but it's something to keep an eye on just because it's easy to overlook i guess and i think there's a little bit of potential there uh the main draw to this direction for me is going to be revive the shire with bath song if I have a single Bath Song, I really like to have a way to loot my deck with it. Given that Bath Song's uncommon, you can't count on uh, opening two of them. So the common way to loop your deck with Bath Song is to combine it with Revive the Shire, which involves playing green in your blue deck, which I generally try not to do. But if you can use, if you can instead be a like multicolor deck with a bunch of other instants and sorceries that can function with like a green base 
and then fix to smoothly cast your cards of other colors to give you you know the removal and stuff like that uh the life gain that you're getting from your food is going to help with your like very long game bath song situation and yeah I, I think there is a like green x control deck that's very spell based that i would only really see coming together at least for me as a result of bath song Wizard's Rockets is another available piece of fixing. That's the uh, one-mana artifact that you can enter as tapped, and you can spend X and sacrifice it to uh, make X mana any any combination of colors. This is not a reliable way to fix your mana if you're genuinely playing three-plus colors, but it is uh, really good fixing if you're just splashing a card in a two-color deck. If you're playing a lot of colors... It's still good to play Rockets to just kind of smooth things out. If you don't draw like a source of one of your colors early, it can still let you, you know, cycle and play like the one important card that you can't cast that hopefully finds you your mana of other colors or at least buys you time to draw them. But when you're like counting your colored sources, if that's something you're doing to try to like have a good understanding of how much ability you have to cast your spells, it doesn't really count as like a whole source of anything, let alone everything. So nice bonus, but you need to be, you can't really rely on Wizards Rockets if you're like getting really ambitious with your colors. If you are playing Wizards Rockets, uh, it can be nice to find other synergies with them, like Samwise the Stouthearted or Improvised Club, uh, which are both cards that can just kind of give you extra value off of your rockets. Gandalf the White is another one. The blue-white 4-4 Flying uh, Legend is another one, in addition to, to some extent, the any of the like draw second card type guys. So there are some random other synergies with rockets to look for, but I think most of the time you're playing any sort of ambitious mana base rockets just on their face can be pretty good and then you know the more you end up with multiple rockets because they tend not to get taken very early the more you might be a little more enthusiastic about putting improvised clubs or whatever in your deck next up there are a bunch of different combos that fix your mana in this format so the next one i'm going to talk about is great hall of the citadel that's the land that lets you spend a mana of any color to make two mana and any combination of colors that can only be used to cast uh legendary cards it's a really, really powerful source of fixing because it casts, you know, like any of the uncommon legends in the set, um, you know, it covers the colored mana requirements anyway. So it's really good, but it can be weird if you're trying to splash both legendary cards and non-legendary cards in all of your colors, because while it makes it really easy to cast your legendary cards, for the purpose of casting your other things, it's just a colorless land. And so if you're playing cards like spells, like instants and sorceries of three different colors or even just creatures that aren't legendary, then the Great Hall can make your mana really difficult and also just difficult to mentally process. So I've liked it most when I can actually just draft a two color deck and then splash legendary cards of a third, maybe fourth color, especially if you can get multiple Great Hall Citadels. I... Uh, recently had a draft that I put up on my personal YouTube that was a green-white deck with three Great Hall of the Citadels that was playing a bunch of red legends and Aragorn, and my mana was fine because I had four Woes Pathfinders and three Great Hall of the Citadels, and outside of legendary cards, I was just a two-color deck. It felt a little unusual, like it felt lucky to get 
uh, three great Hall of the Citadels and four Woes Pathfinders, but that's the kind of thing that you want to be looking at in terms of, you know, just asking questions about how your mana is going to work. And like, once you start to have a couple of great halls, you can really focus on, okay, I had thought for a little while that I might've been like a Naya deck or figuring out like what my splash is and stuff. And then once it became apparent that great halls were how I was going to do the splash, I stopped looking at non-legendary red or blue cards, um, even though I had an Aragorn early in the draft that made me think I might be playing red or blue, just so that I could make sure that the deck was very consistent. Shire Scarecrow, the two mana O3 that lets you spend a mana to add a mana of any color once per turn can technically fix for your mana if things are going really badly. I'd try to avoid it. It's a very weak card. But if you're getting enough powerful spells because you have it and your mana and like your mana can't function without it, but the cards that you're playing are just so good, it can be worth it. It's a card that's structurally similar to Salvaged Mana Worker from Dominaria United, the 1-3 with the same ability. Now, it's a 1-3, so it has an extra power, and it doesn't have Defender, and the cost and other ability are the same. So Salvage Mana Worker, which is a card that people generally tried not to play in Dominaria United, is just a better card than Shire Scarecrow. But Salvage Mana Worker honestly overperformed for me quite a bit. Like, it, it was surprisingly good for just letting me play decks full of strong cards and make all of the mana super smooth. So if you find yourself in that spot where there isn't other fixing available and your power level is really high, if you can play all of these like splash cards that you've drafted, it might be okay to play Shire Scarecrow sometimes, but it, it is not something you should look to do. So those are the ways that you can, you know, fix your mana with commons. There are a lot of different approaches, you know, different cards, and you really want to think about what each of them is doing to your creature density, spell density, curve, mana count, because uh, they all affect those things in different ways. But I, I think I've mostly covered how to do that. So with a lot of these ways to fix your mana, uh, many partings and what was Pathfinder and the Elven Farsight situation, you're you know, going to be looking for green mana early to fix your mana, which means that you're going to want to be base green, which means that you're going to want to put green cards in your deck. Which means that it's important to understand which green cards are good to put in your deck. Given that you're trying to be a base green deck, and given how weak green is in the set, it's important to play the right green cards and to know which green cards you're looking for uh, in this deck. So the Green package of Ents Fury, which is the fight spell that works well with four power creatures, uh, one in a green sorcery, plays really well with uh, Mirror Mirror Guardian, the three mana four two dwarf that tempts when it dies, and Bag End Porter, the four four dwarf that gets uh, plus X plus X when it attacks, where X is the number of legendary creatures, and Enraged Horn, the uh, five mana four five trampler that tempts when it enters. Those are kind of the good commons that have uh, four power, also generous scent, but that's kind of a different thing, but also very good and a very high priority for the green deck. So um, that whole package is strong. Those represent most of the best green cards. 
those are kind of the green cards that I want to fill my deck out with as much as possible beyond the fixing, which means that the green commons you're looking for are specifically Generousent, Woe's Pathfinder, Many Partings, and then the three four-power creatures and Ents Fury. And beyond that, I think that it's okay to play like a Mirkwood Spider or a Mushroom Watchdogs to have uh, early game stuff, uh, Watchdogs especially, you know, the more uh, food creation you have, many partings, and anything else. Elven Farsight, I talked about how you could play it if you have like 20 or more creatures, Revive the Shire, you could play if you have Bath Song, and I would try to avoid all of the other green commons a vast majority of the time. Sometimes it might be okay to play one of the combat tricks or something, but you really don't want to be going too far out of that list of green commons. And you, you really want to be prioritizing the fixing and the four power stuff more than uh, the spider and the watchdogs. So those are the, those are the like playable green commons. If you stick to prioritizing those, I think they're all like generally functional and you can have a reasonable green deck. You want like that stuff and then all of the like powerful gold cards that other people aren't taking and then any good removal that you can splash. And that's basically what you're looking to make your deck out of here. The primary reason to play this archetype is to take advantage of all the gold cards that other players can't use. There are a lot of gold cards in the set that are pretty strong and uh, there are not that many people like because there's such a bias towards certain archetypes like red black if you imagine that the average table has two or three red black drafters that leaves more different color pairs to be underdrafted or undrafted than most tables and so while a lot of those color pairs are generally pretty weak uh, they might have gold cards that are pretty strong and if you can scoop up and use all of those gold cards you can add a lot of power to your uh, green deck. So that's that's the payoff, is just getting to use all these like gold cards. And that's why Great Hall of the Citadel is such a reasonable way to go about things, because a large portion of those gold cards are the legends. And if you can get multiple Great Halls with some other green fixing, you can pretty easily cast every single one of them. Given that the payoff for what you're doing is largely uh, coming from these like gold creatures and stuff. Your deck is generally going to be pretty creature heavy. I talked about how it's possible to have a green spell based deck, but most of the time that's not what's going to happen. And given that you're going to be a creature heavy deck, you're kind of strategically pushed into like the proactive, big proactive space. So uh, that's a term that I use for a deck that other people would probably call mid-range, um, you're not really a control deck because you can't really afford to play all that much card advantage because you're going to be a little bit behind because of using some of your mana to uh, fix your mana. You generally can't also afford to cast a bunch of card draw spells. You're mostly just looking to play powerful cards on curve starting whenever you can. And then you're hoping that the fact that like you're you're hoping to just win on card quality that like you're not necessarily spending more mana than your opponent, but you're getting, you know, an extra stat here or there, or an extra ability here or there that makes a difference. And so your cards just do a little bit more. They're a little bit better and you win because, uh, you know, better cards line up well against worse cards. 
but your uh, vulnerabilities are your opponent playing a fast deck and uh, going under you while you're like getting set up, or your opponent playing uh, like a control deck with card advantage, having a removal for your good rate creatures, and then just kind of like burying you in card quantity going longer. So that means that like against the creature decks, you're going to be largely uh, playing defense and trying to make the game go longer so that you have more time to draw more, like for your good cards to outshine their weaker cards. And against control decks, you need to be able to play, you know, the best aggro game that you can, hope that uh, their removal doesn't line up well against your, like, big creatures and kill them while they're digging for an answer. So that's why the deck would often be called mid-range, because it can kind of play both roles depending on what's happening. But that that's the space that you're going to be in most of the time. That's just the space that the green cards that are good exist in and also kind of where you're led by playing these like good rate gold cards and other colors. If you understand that and you're playing best of three, you can get a lot of value out of your sideboard, you know, bringing in cards that help defend against aggressive decks and help grind against control decks. But in best of one, you know, you just have to make the most of, you know, the cards you draw or whatever. If you do want to get some card draw into your deck, uh, there's a good chance that Arwen's Gift, the four mana, Blue three sorcery that's uh, scry two draw two, but it costs one less if you have two or more legends. Single blue helps compared to the uh, um, trying to use Laurie revealed, and you might actually have two legends a decent portion of the time in this deck, and so that can be a good way to refuel late if you have a curve that can afford to do that. The other thing that I would note is I think that these decks are generally going to be a lot better if you have a good amount of tempting both to smooth your draws, uh, to be able to compete with like the grinding power of the control decks late, and also if you can pick up all some of the legends that uh, specifically reward you for tempting, I think you can uh, get a pretty strong engine going. So while each tempting card makes you want each other tempting card more, and if you get a decent way through the draft and you're light on tempting, then I wouldn't want to try to like force it and start prioritizing tempting high toward the end of pack two or whatever. I would like to try to plan to be tempt heavy. I think a lot of the best versions of this uh, archetype, as with most archetypes in this format, are going to be tempt heavy. Splashing removal is good, um, you know, especially single pip removal. Your, you know, the, the format wants you to be able to interact. There are all these really strong creatures and it's good to be able to kill them. You need to think about how the removal that you're splashing works in your deck, especially if you're like using Great Hall of the Citadel. But, um, you know, part of the strength of multicolor green decks is you get to pick up all the good cards and a lot of the good cards are efficient removal and you don't want to be in a space where you're like overlooking efficient removal because you're just looking for legends and temp cards or something like that. This is a mid-range deck. Mid-range decks want interaction. Uh, you know, some aggro decks can get away with not having much removal and just trying to kill the player. That's not the space you're going to be in most of the time. And uh, yes, you should prioritize removal. The last thing I wanted to mention is I'm a big fan personally of Lembus, the two-mana artifact that scries one then draws and is a food. And when it goes to your graveyard, you uh, shuffle it into your deck. As a food, you can sacrifice it to gain three life for two mana. I like this card uh, in multicolor decks in theory because it's 
uh, is colorless and can scry to help you get your mana together and can help stabilize in the late game. But you do need to be careful about it. If you're spending mana on other cards to make your mana work, this can result in just like too much mana spent on too little board impact. And so uh, a lot of these decks are going to be some of the worst decks for Lembus, you know, unless you happen to be fixing in a way that doesn't eat up too much of your mana or playing a deck that has good food synergies um, or maybe like some hobbit stings or something like that that are going to reward you for having Lembus. And that's it. Kind of a long spiel there about a lot of different ways to make your mana work. Hopefully some of that was useful. There are, you know, obviously some other cards that give you treasures in the set or whatever that can help with little splashes. Most of that's not really the same idea as like multicolored green. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like how to make, you know, Grixis or Esper function touches on some of the same concepts, but is a little bit different from what I'm trying to focus on here. So, yeah, I'm going to turn this over to Twitch chat for questions. And while I'm letting people think of those questions, I'd like to direct anyone who's interested to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes to support the podcast. No new patrons this week, so I would really appreciate anyone who did want to sign up in the next week, get access to the notes, draft logs, coaching discounts, and uh, all that kind of stuff. All right, first question. Do you think Citadel is better than Partings in general for this style of multicolor green deck? I don't think that that's a useful question. I do think that Citadel is a really powerful... Like, Citadel is a a stronger card, right? Citadel is the kind of card that you might want to fix mana with in Constructed in the right situation because there's like no opportunity cost, right? It's just a land. It doesn't come into play tapped. Uh, It just makes your spells work. It lets you do something you can't do just with basics. But the thing that it does is different than the thing that Many Partings does. Many Partings gives you an object and gives you a color of mana that can cast other kinds of spells. Different decks want them. And so the question about which is better should be more a function of like which deck is stronger, but which deck is stronger isn't going to help you most of the time you're drafting because it's really just about what your deck needs. And so like I might say, oh yeah, the legend deck is stronger because I'm imagining you just have all these great multicolor legends and you somehow have three great hall of citadels. But if, uh, you know, you are in a spot where you have like two powerful non-legends of different colors that aren't green and you're like playing green and you're trying to fix your mana, then like obviously many partings is going to be a way better way to do it. So I, I think they're it's better to just acknowledge their differences than to try to figure out which one's a stronger card. Is Revive the Shire really worth running for just Bath Song? Would you try to prioritize cards that help give it targets like land cyclers? and tempting to loot it away if you draw a revive early. Yes to all of that. Being able to loop your deck just gives you fundamentally different strategic considerations than not being able to. If you're not fully versed in how to take advantage of that or that doesn't resonate with you, then I would say that you probably shouldn't bother. But if you understand and are trying to draft a deck that loops, then yes, 
having the card that lets that happen is worth whatever it takes to make it happen. But yes, given that you're playing Revive the Shire, it is good to have ways to like make it functional outside of Bath Song, given that you can just Bath Song it back if you've used it early so that you can get back Bath Song late. Are there situations where you would cut lands in favor of many partings? Yes, many partings is to be treated as a land. If you put many partings in your deck and don't cut a land, you'll have too many uh, mana sources. It is a land that requires green mana, so you really want to make sure that you have ideally nine, but if things are going poorly and you're in a pinch, eight uh, cards independent of many partings that let you cast it by turn two. So that's to say basically forests and ents. But once you have enough green to rely on many partings, then you should be cutting lands to play it. If you don't have enough lands, enough green sources to play many partings, then you probably just shouldn't put it in your deck. In regards to important spells with envelope, uh, do you value birthday escape? Or do you specifically like the others because they're also removable? Uh, would you count Mirkwood Spider in that role? So... The thing about Mirkwood Spider is you're probably playing it on turn one, so it's not like that useful to be able to immediately play it off of an envelope, especially because you're probably base green, whereas like the envelope is often going to be the first time you had access to like the red or black mana for one of the removal spells. I do, I mean, like I said, I think that the deck wants to be heavy tempting, so I think Birthday Escape is good. Uh, in this kind of deck if you're playing blue. But uh, I think that like the uh, tempo aspect, like Birthday Escape's not doing anything to forgive the fact that you spent turn three doing nothing. So the removal spells are functioning very differently there. Birthday Escape is additional temp synergy, which is good with Envelope just because you're looking for temp synergy. But the thing that I was saying about those uh, uncommons being premium is about recovering the tempo from using a man artifact. If you pack one, pick one, Bilbo is Great Hall immediately on your radar for pick two. I assume you're asking, would I like to second pick a Great Hall after first picking Bilbo? And the answer is that I would not. And the reason for that is that I think blue-red is a really strong archetype. So I'm not looking to like splash Bilbo into something else. I'm just looking to draft blue-red. And Bilbo is also good early. So, like, trying to splash Bilbo isn't great. And, like, I, I with one card, I, I haven't seen any evidence that I should be expecting to have a bunch of other legends I want to splash. And also, blue and red both have, like, a lot of good cards that aren't legendary creatures. So it's likely that Great Hall is just not going to be a very good mana source in my deck. Do you still consider... Land cyclers to be equal to tap lands in best of one. Yes. I mean, so technically, I think that they are slightly like it's a little bit more true in best of one than not best of one because it's even less likely that you actually have zero non cycling things. But my conclusion on all of that math is it looks kind of complicated and trivially significant, and uh, I build my mana bases identically in best of one and best of three. Given that green cards on average have a much lower game and hand win rate than other colors, how do you imagine going down this path in a typical draft where the packs will usually contain an individually better non-green card? How often do you expect to draft this archetype? So 
Remember that game in hand win rate does not tell you the full story about the individual power level of a card. And in this set in particular, the 17 lands win rates tell you a lot more about the strength of the color than the strength of the card because there is such disparity in the win rates between the colors. Once you have decided that forests are going to be in your deck, it doesn't actually follow that all of the green cards are worse to cast than all of the cards of other colors. It is, as I mentioned, true that a lot of the green cards are weak, but not all of them. So I, I guess the answer to the implied question that isn't quite what you asked is, I will not be using game in hand win rate as a direct comparison between the green cards and the cards of my other colors to figure out the strength of a card for my deck when I'm expecting to play green. Uh, I think that uh, the low win rate of green cards is a function largely of people playing the wrong green cards and building their green decks incorrectly and winning less with green decks than they uh, have to. And there's some room to improve. I also, separately from that, believe that green is a weaker color than the other colors. So while there is room to do better, it's still correct not to do it very often, unless green is wide open, which it should be pretty often because it's weak and underdrafted and the stats say all the cards are bad. So how often do I expect to draft it? Uh, not that often because I personally have a very strong bias toward blue, which is also, I think, a relatively open color in this format. But I do think that it is useful to have green in your range for the tables where green is being very underdrafted. Because um, I do think that like the best green cards with fixing for other good cards can lead to strong decks a decent portion of the time. Do you think green splash and straight green X focused archetype strategy like green blue can coexist in the same pod? Yes, insofar as blue green can exist in a pod. If the question is, if I know that someone else is drafting blue green in a pod, would I still try to draft like some kind of multicolor green deck? And the answer is yes, because I think that the blue green player is likely taking a bunch of cards that I don't think are playable in green to begin with. So uh, I'm not going to have a lot of trouble cooperating with them. Uh, I would actually probably do better cooperating with someone who's trying to take a bunch of elves and stuff that I don't want than someone who's taking like the removal cards that I might want to splash that are good in other colors. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up. So thank you so much uh, everyone for listening, uh, especially people in Twitch chat for uh, the questions. And that's going to be it for this week. I'll be back next week for another episode of uh, my patrons choosing. Um, have a good week and I'll see you then. Prepare for light speed.